If you would, take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 14, continuing to look at uh, this last section of Paul's uh, missionary journey, the first missionary journey that he and uh, Barnabas took, having been sent out from the church in uh, Antioch, just, just north of uh, Judea and Samaria, and they've, they've gone to the island of Cyprus, they've ministered there, and they've gone on to the, the mainland of what we might call southern Turkey today, and uh, we saw last week their ministry in a, another place called Antioch, a different Antioch, uh, Paul proclaiming Christ there in the synagogue, uh, and then being kicked out, being run out of town, and so we pick up uh, after that scene and see Paul and Barnabas going to two other cities on this missionary endeavor. So if you're able, uh, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word, Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. Pay careful attention, this is God's Word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycania, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycanian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Give us 
understanding and faith to receive this, your word, in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke to record these things, would illumine our hearts today and would direct our gaze unto Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, The book of Acts is kind of like a roadmap for the gospel. It it begins by giving us a a destination point. As as Jesus commissioned his disciples at the beginning of Acts, he said, you're going to start in Jerusalem. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you power to witness, and you're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. It gives us a destination that the gospel is going to be advancing, progressing all the way to the ends of the earth. It also kind of tells us how that journey is going to take place, how the gospel reaches that destination. Witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, those who believe in Jesus, will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the good news with them wherever they go. And and as they go, what they'll find out is that the Holy Spirit has gone ahead of them and has prepared those who will hear and potentially receive their message. We've learned along the way of this journey that there will be some places that are smooth, open road. You can press the pedal to the metal and you can coast pretty easily. They uh, often find themselves in places where there is joyful and glad reception of the gospel. Though not many. There are not many places like that where it's just smooth, open road. Most of the places they find uh, are difficult terrain. Some receive Christ with joy. Others reject and openly oppose the gospel and the messengers of the gospel with outright hostility and even threat. But always, through, through both of these situations... The glad reception and the hostile opposition to the gospel, Jesus is always at work advancing the good news of his resurrection, pushing forward the witness of his church, building his church through the proclamation of the good news. And today we take uh, two stops on the map, if you will, in two pretty different cities. One stop in Iconium and one stop in a place called Lystra. Paul and Barnabas are uh, coming to kind of the tail end of this first missionary journey that they've been sent out on. They left Pisidian Antioch because of hostility, and now they find themselves in two very different places and two very different reactions, one quite surprising. And what binds these two snapshots of missionary work together is this theme of witness. Uh, we see first that Jesus is at work witnessing to his grace through our words and our lives. And then we'll see secondly that God himself has been actively witnessing to who he is in the world through what we might call common grace or often called general revelation, uh, so that we are able, therefore, to help people see God's goodness and direct them to Jesus himself. Let's look first at Jesus at work witnessing to his grace through our words and our lives. Notice the first seven verses, this scene in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas show up in this city. They've left the hostility of Antioch, and they follow this general pattern that we'll see 
quite often, and we've already seen. They go first to the Jews. They find a synagogue. If there's a synagogue in the city, they go there first. They begin to reason and uh, persuade, seek to persuade the Jewish uh, people and and God-fearing Gentiles who are gathered at the synagogue. They try to persuade them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. We saw that last week in Paul's sermon to the synagogue in Antioch, how he would have presented that message to them. Notice a couple of things that happen in Iconium. Verse 1, we're told that, that they spoke in such a way that there's this response of belief. Many of the Jews and even many of the Gentiles hear this message, that Christ came, he died, and he rose again in the fulfillment of Scripture, and they believe. They respond with belief. But again, there's opposition. Verse 2 unbelieving Jews. Luke actually describes them as disobedient Jews. They were supposed to receive the promises and act on them, but they rejected them. These unbelieving Jews start to kind of stir up uh, others in the synagogue. Luke describes it as poisoning their minds against Paul and Barnabas. But notice this odd thing in verse 3. There's opposition It's fairly intense opposition. And then verse 3 starts with this word, so, or therefore. Paul and Barnabas, in response to this intense opposition, therefore, stay. They they remain in Iconium for quite a while. And you might think one of those things doesn't follow from the other. Normally, where there's opposition, uh, they linger for a little bit. But the opposition increases and they get out of town, just like they did from Antioch. But here we're told, Luke tells us, there's opposition. They're poisoning minds against Paul and Barnabas. And because of that, verse 3, they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. And notice the end of verse 3. They speak boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. How is it, and perhaps why is it, that Paul and Barnabas remain in this place where there's opposition, where there's hostility against them? Luke is telling us that the reason they're able to stay and the reason they remain there is because Jesus himself is at work witnessing through them to the word of his grace. He witnesses through them by his own word, Paul undoubtedly went to the scriptures, pointed to the way Christ had fulfilled the scriptures, and he witnesses through them by their very lives. I think it's worth uh, just pointing out the fact that Paul and Barnabas remained in this place among these people for so long, even at a threat to their own lives, was the fruit of their love for these people. They not only taught them, and shared the gospel and proclaimed the good news of Jesus, but they loved them with their very lives. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Thessalonians, where he says that that when when they were among the Thessalonians, we haven't gotten there in, in Acts yet, but while they were among the Thessalonians, Paul shared with them not only the gospel, but their very lives. This this was his pattern where he was able to carry it out, to teach, to persuade, to reason, to proclaim Christ and doing it through the investment of his own life in theirs. Uh, I met a young man recently, uh, just, just yesterday, in fact, from, from Texas. He's interested in going into the ministry, and so a mutual friend 
uh, asked us all to, to get together so that he might be able to talk to a pastor in a church and glean whatever wisdom he might be able to squeeze out of me. And uh, as, as we were getting to know one another, uh, our, our mutual friend was telling me that this young man who's a, a junior at uh, Texas A&M, uh, about two years ago when he was a freshman and, and the, at the beginning of uh, people being told to stay in their dorms and, and all of these lockdowns that were going on on college campuses in the spring of 2020, uh, that he decided that um, to kind of provide some fellowship uh, in this difficult time of college, that he would start having a gathering on a rooftop and gather people for prayer and Bible study and fellowship. And as they were gathering together over the course of time, he noticed that, that many of the friends of his who were gathering to pray and to study the Bible together, that they were spending a good bit of time complaining about all the fraternities on campus. Now, I, I wasn't in a fraternity, so I don't have firsthand experience of this, but I know enough to know probably what they were complaining about. And this, this young man was bothered by the fact that their approach to the problems of the fraternities was to simply complain about it and to judge them. And he said, you know, this is, if, if we have concern for these guys who are in these fraternities, uh, why don't we do something about it? So he decided to join a fraternity. So he found one that he thought would fit his personality and, and so forth, and he, uh, he rushed for the fraternity, I think is what you call it. And, and that particular fraternity turned him down. They didn't uh, accept him into the group. Instead, he got accepted into the most notoriously wild partying fraternity on the campus of Texas A&M, commonly referred to as the graveyard because no campus ministry has been able to get into this fraternity and have any success. So this young man, upfront about his commitment to Jesus, upfront about his faith in Christ, rushes for this fraternity. They they let him in, and uh, and they you know, they put him through the ringer to say it lightly in in terms of all the junk you got to go through when you join a fraternity. But he persevered, continued to live faithfully for Jesus, continued to love his fraternity brothers, uh, to live with integrity before them. Uh, so that the Lord used him to begin to soften their hearts. They made him their chaplain. I don't know that they'd ever had a chaplain before. <laughs> My point is, here, here's a wonderful example of what I think Paul would have been modeling in a place like Iconium. He shows up, he teaches. He doesn't just like, you know, open up the can of your head and put knowledge in and then close it and say goodbye. He invests his life. He pours himself into them. He remains on with them, even though there's this rising opposition. Paul clearly had here some concern, recognizing, you know, maybe he thought, I, I can handle the opposition. He's faced it before. But these are new believers. These are fresh babes in Christ. What will happen if we, if we leave, if we pick up and take off because there's opposition? What will happen to them? You can read about Paul's later advice to them in the letter to the Galatians. That's this region that Paul later wrote to. And Paul and Barnabas both had the same assurance that you and I can have, that as we share the word, you've got good news. You, you know who Jesus is and what he's done. As you share the word and as you share your life with other people, as you invest your life in others for the depending upon the Lord and, and testifying to his grace, guess what? Jesus is the one 
bearing witness through his word and through your life to others. There's a beautiful picture of this in the book of Revelation in that, uh, op- that opening set of visions that the apostle John has in exile on the island of Patmos. He sees, do you remember, he sees Jesus carrying in his hand, uh, I think it's the seven stars that represent the seven angels of the churches, kind of their, their pastors, so to speak. And what's Jesus doing as he carries the seven stars of the seven churches in his hands? He's walking among the lampstands, which are a picture of the church. So you can kind of pull all that together and think about it this way. Suppose you're, you're having coffee with a friend. Uh, maybe they've been through a difficult season and, and uh, you're, you're seeking to invest in their lives. You're, you know, you recognize that there's a need for them to trust in Christ, to hear the good news, to find hope forgiveness in Jesus. And so you get together for coffee and, and you're just talking, you're sharing your life with one another and, and you're, you're praying in the back of your mind as you're talking to them about the Lord and trying to encourage them to trust in Jesus. And, and what you don't see is that by his Holy Spirit, Jesus is walking among you. Jesus is walking among those whose hearts are closed, whose hearts are hardened, whose hearts, the Bible tells us, are dead in sin. Jesus, the only one who can give life to those hearts, is walking among us, using our witness, using our words, using our lives to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to bring life to hearts that are dead in sin and unable on their own to respond to the good news. Paul was able, Paul and Barnabas were able to persevere, to endure. They chose to remain there for a long time, speaking boldly in dependence upon the Lord because it's Jesus who is at work witnessing to the word of his grace through our words, his word, and our lives. Now, they eventually are run off from Iconium. They uncover this plot this nefarious plot to mistreat them and to do harm to them. And so they they eventually leave. The Lord calls them somewhere else. And they arrive, verse 8 tells us, in a place called Lystra. Now, it's not entirely clear if Lystra has a Jewish synagogue or not. It seems to be a fairly pagan uh, Roman city when they get there. And so you got a different crowd, and you have a different audience, uh, different reaction and a a different message that Luke records for us from Paul's mouth. Notice kind of the occasion. Paul comes in, they come into town, Paul and Barnabas, uh, and this this ought to sound very familiar to the episode of Peter going up to the temple, and there's the crippled man at the beautiful gate, and Peter and John heal the man. It's a very similar situation here. Paul shows up, Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. There's a man who's crippled from birth, He's never walked. Luke's emphasizing for us the miraculous nature of this event. Paul begins speaking. He's doing some open-air preaching there. And the man is looking at him. He's listening to Paul. And Paul looks back at him intently and notices somehow, uh, clearly the Holy Spirit is at work. Paul notices somehow this man has faith enough to be healed, which is kind of a play on words. It's the same word used for Salvation. He has faith enough to be physically saved, healed, and most likely uh, spiritually rescued as well. Paul tells the man to stand upright. He stands up immediately. He not only stands up, he leaps up, never used his legs before to walk. And he leaps up and begins walking. And the whole crowd sees it. And what's their reaction? Their reaction is the only reaction that they know 
to have. They look at Paul, who's doing all the talking. They look at Barnabas, who's maybe not doing all the talking, but seems to be involved somehow. And they draw the conclusion. This is Barnabas is Zeus, and Paul is Hermes, who was the mouthpiece of the gods, the mouthpiece for Zeus. And they begin in their own language, which Paul and Barnabas didn't understand. They begin to proclaim and praise that uh, kind of, you can catch the irony if you think about it, that the gods have come to visit us in the form of men, which was true and not true because God actually had come in the form of man in Jesus Christ. They just missed, they got the wrong God here. They think Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, and so they, there's a little bit of confusion. Barnabas and Paul don't quite understand what's going on because they don't understand their language. Uh, but they get the point as the priest of Zeus begins to come in with this bull kind of clothed in garlands to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, who they think mistakenly are Zeus and Hermes. Notice Paul's response, Paul and Barnabas' response. I keep forgetting that Barnabas is here, but he's important. He's important. They tear their garments as a sign of grief over the idolatry and blasphemy that's about to go on as they realize that these people are about to come and offer them worship. Say, no, no, no. We're men just like you, and we bring you good news. We bring you good news. Notice what this good news is that Paul proclaims to them. Uh, Verse uh, 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. Paul is telling this this group of pagan Romans in Lystra that even though they have not known the true God, and they were not given special revelation, the word of God, in the same way that Israel was, Yet God himself has been at work witnessing to them regarding who he is through what we call general revelation. Uh, Theologians often divide the topic of revelation into two categories, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is usually a way to describe God's revealing himself in the works of creation as well as in our consciences. And that God has made all of us to receive that and even to long for it. So this is what Psalm 19 describes when it talks about a voice that cannot be heard, but that has gone out over all the earth. The revelation of God in all of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Paul is telling them the true God, not these vain gods, these vain idols, the true God has been witnessing to you, even though you don't have his word and his promises, you're strangers to these things, you're outside of these things, the true God has been witnessing to you throughout history. How? By giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, and this this is just delightful, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, Paul is saying that through God's common grace to all people, through this general revelation, his providing rain and harvest, food and even joy in your hearts, that all of these things are kind of little tokens 
of God's goodness, of God's love, and that they are all meant to lead you to the ultimate token of God's love, the ultimate demonstration of his goodness in the cross of Jesus Christ. In uh, April or May of, of 2020, Carly and I were spending a good bit of time walking around York uh, just to, to get outside. And, and uh, you know, remember, th- those were confusing times. You know, you, we were asking things like, is it okay to even get, go outside? You know, how, all of these things were confusing. And so, but we wanted to get outside because we needed some fresh air. And so we walked maybe about 100 miles in the month of April, just doing three-mile treks every day or so. And, and as we went along the way, uh, somebody, I don't, I don't think we ever figured out who, somebody started painting little rocks. You remember this? Started painting little rocks with little, you know, just positive, encouraging uh, messages on them or sometimes just a beautiful little painted rock, just leaving it randomly along the sidewalks in downtown New York, maybe setting it on a tree or on the ground or whatever. And, and it was just, I think somebody felt like, Here's a little token I can leave to maybe brighten somebody's day. Maybe give a little, you know, a little color. Uh, help somebody remember that there's still goodness and kindness in the world. But here's the thing. Uh, it was completely anonymous, and I don't know that there was any intention on the part of the person who was doing it that we would find the rock and be able to figure out who did it and, and then go and establish a relationship with them. I don't think that was the intention of that at all. It was just a random act of kindness uh, done publicly. The difference with God's general revelation, his common grace, is God reveals himself in creation to all people, and he has made all people in his image so that there's a desire to know one greater than ourselves. There is this built-in inclination in all people, even though it's distorted by sin, there's this built-in Uh, kind of seed knowledge that we are not alone, that we are limited, that we are mortal, that there is something greater than us and that we were meant for that thing. And God intends for us not just to kind of see these tokens of his kindness, his goodness, and his love and say, well, isn't that a nice anonymous rock painted on the side of the road? God intends for us to see these tokens of his love and to be drawn back to know him through Jesus Christ, so that we can say his general revelation in creation and in our conscience, you know right from wrong, all of those things are God's way of saying, I'm God, I exist, you can know me. His general revelation is not enough for us to know him personally, but it is enough to leave us without excuse for rejecting him. We need the word. We need the special revelation of God in Jesus Christ to be able to know him. Otherwise, we end up in idolatry, taking the good gifts that God gives us and elevating them up to a place they were never intended to hold. Money, power, relationships, happiness. We take these good gifts from God and we say, these are the ultimate things. These are our gods and we will worship them or we bring God down to our sides like Zeus and Hermes. The gods are kind of like us. They're always arguing and fighting, and they have to be appeased. We, we engage in idolatry when we don't have the needed special revelation where God says, not only do you see me in creation, but this is who I am, and this is what I've done for you in Jesus Christ. We need God's word. Paul gives us a starting point. 
The God who exists, the true God, has done you good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons. He's satisfied your heart with food and gladness. But he's interrupted. Others show up and they stir it up and they stone Paul where he's almost dead and, and he gets up, he, he survives. Uh, but we don't have the rest of the story here because Paul didn't get to say it. <laughs> he was uh, nearly killed and so he had to leave. Uh, but we do have the rest of the story in Scripture. You can think about it this way. Every good thing you've ever experienced, every morsel of food that you've ever eaten, every, every ounce of gladness and joy that you have had and experienced in your life, every rain cloud that has opened up and nourished the ground, every fruitful season of crops that provide food for our stomachs, Every single good thing that happens in the world is God whispering to us clearly but gently that he exists, that he is good, and that we must worship and know him with gratitude in our hearts. Not only that, but every bit of affliction, every bit of sorrow, every bit of heartache, every brick wall we run into every disappointment we've ever felt, every ounce of, of grief, sorrow, mourning, every tear you've shed, because this life is mixed with tears and laughter, every bit of heartache that we have had is God shouting to us that this world is broken by sin and that he has provided for us a redeemer in Jesus Christ. See, the, the goodness of God and the justice of God for our sin, these, these things that we see in tension all around us, joy and sadness, um, goodness and, and, and justice at work in the world, all of these things are reconciled at the cross of Jesus so that Christ is himself the ultimate token and demonstration of God's love. For there we see at the cross the goodness of God, that the same God who provides rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, food for your stomachs and hearts full of gladness and joy, that this same God who is good all the time has brought justice for your sin, his very wrath on his own son as the ultimate demonstration of his goodness and grace to all who would call upon his name. Every token leads back to the ultimate token of Christ given for us. And here as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we have the tokens that Jesus himself uh, gives to us, the elements of bread and the fruit of the vine, to remind us of his love and grace for us at the cross and in his resurrection, and to assure us that the good and holy God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ for all who put their faith in him. Two brief points of application as we close here. If you're a Christian claiming the name of Jesus and seeking to live for him, take encouragement and don't grow weary in doing good as we see that Christ is at work witnessing through you to others to show his grace through your words, through his word, and through your life as you invest in others for his sake. If you're not a believer you're struggling to believe these things or you're skeptical and doubting uh, yet interested 
hear God's assurance and word to you that every good thing that you've received is from his hand to show you that he is good. But don't stop at the anonymous token. Know that the one who has shown you good in your life has revealed himself to you in his word and most especially in Jesus Christ whom he gave for our, our sins. Come to Jesus, turn to Jesus, and find joy and hope fulfilled through him. Let's pray together.